This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Let me tell you a story. It is a story of a real-life SMS text message that I just received from a listener. And you can always send me an SMS text message as well at 8168-MORANO. That's 8168-M-O-R-A-N-O. This person wrote me, Gutfeld, that's a a show on uh, the Fox News Channel, Gutfeld has now been preempted several times in the last few weeks for the Hamas attacks on Israel and for the mass killings in Maine and today for U.S. shooting at Syria. Is that a mistake? And he adds, I think people need a break from continuous upsetting news. I'm not saying Gutfeld is the best thing at 10 p.m., but it's a break. Let me tell you something. I could not agree more. And one of the things that we've uh, tried to do on this program is cover a lot of the big issues, but cover them in a way that maybe other shows aren't covering them. Uh, Bring up uh, different kinds of people than what you hear on a lot of the other shows. Uh, Bring up different points than what you hear on a lot of the other shows. Uh, If we've been successful at that, I have no idea. But I think if you're going to hear four hours of – Terrorism, war, mass shootings, crime. I mean, that's not the kind of show that I would want to listen to. So we try to at least allow for, especially on Fridays, on the weekend, for a bit of levity. And that is where my in-studio guest has delivered in spades. Elliot Gordon is backed by popular demand. He has led and leads a just fascinating life. He's an entrepreneur, a former aide to Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a producer and a talent agent. Elliot, it's great to see you again. Frank, it is great to be here. I just love being here because I love your audience. We're on the same page concerning entertainment. And whenever I do your show, I'm constantly getting people. We heard you on Frank. We heard you on Frank. I never knew these people stayed up that late, but they stay up late with you. Well, that's uh, that's very nice to hear. And I love your energy, and I find your energy inspiring. And uh, the fact that you actually have some substance to you, that doesn't hurt either. Um, a couple of things I want to ask you about in entertainment of today and yesteryear and how those how those areas are intersecting. But first... I know uh, our mutual friend Curtis Lee told me he saw you recently at the Support Israel Day Parade. When I go onto your Facebook page, I don't even see a face. I see a giant 
Israeli flag. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine you're a pretty big uh, supporter of the state of Israel, right? Oh, without a doubt. I've been there several times. I've loved being out there. I got friends who live out there and uh, uh, 100%. In fact, when I was uh, working with uh, Mayor Giuliani, we had tried to make Jerusalem a sister city. We were working on it. For some reason, it never came about. But uh, absolutely 100% supportive for the state of Israel. Now, um, for starters, one, what is with that flag? Why did they steal the colors of the Greek flag? The Greek flag's been around since 1822. Couldn't they pick their own color scheme? Good point. I never thought of it. I just happen to love the combination. I know my mother loved the colors blue and white. I have no idea how they got it, but it looks great. Uh, it certainly does. So uh, give me your thoughts on um, a quick, quick take on what's happening in the world right now with respect to the Middle East. Well, very concerned. I mean, uh, gee, they're in an awful situation out there. And as far as I'm concerned, you got some guys that are Pretty bright, pretty sharp, and let's just uh, let them lead the way. They know what they're doing. They've lived through this for 75 years, and let's uh, let's take our lead from them. Whenever they decide the invasion is right, they'll do it their way. A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Jeffrey Gurian on the program. Do you, remember, you know sure, Jeffrey? Absolutely. And, sure. and so I, I find Jeffrey very entertaining and a lot of fun. And uh, Jeffrey, when he came on right in the midst of all this craziness, it reminded me of what Mayor Giuliani said on Saturday Night Live right after September 11th, which is basically he he gave everybody permission to laugh again. How do you in doing what you do, not just with me, but in the the other shows and whatever, wherever else you're speaking or performing? How do you balance that? How do you um balance the desire for people not to wallow in despair and depression with the desire to be respectful to what people are going through, being upset about some very serious things, including what I just mentioned. Sure, Frank. I'm working all the time and I'm finding what I was uh, I was concerned about. Gee, is that going to be the situation? Do I got to tone it down because I'm bringing in comedians and singers and dancers, at least on video? And uh, I found it to be the opposite. I walk in and I tell the folks, hey, uh, tough times out there. We need a break. We need 60 minutes off and let's get back to our lives the best way we can. And I get applause and saying, hey, we want you here. I just got a call this morning. There's a, a beautiful place. Uh, it's called uh, Encore Luxury Living in Jericho. And they've got a theater there. Say, Ellie, you available November 16th. We want you to come into our theater. History of the Catskills, uh, 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 history of the uh, comedians of the Catskills. And I say, I'm available. I'll be down there and we'll do the thing with the comedians. Uh, I'm running into this all the time that they say we need a break. Thank God for guys like Buddy Hackett and Jackie Mason and Pat Cooper and Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis. We need them for 60 minutes. Well, that's uh, that well said. And uh, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, by the way, I want to amend the uh, something from the last hour. People were listening in the last hour and uh, having Elliot in studio has kind of reminded me the the uh, question that I got about it, about if I could only keep one flag, uh, only one lapel pin. I had wanted to be in the Friars Club for so long, and I really, even once I was in the Friars Club, it took me a while to get one of those lapel pins. So even though the Friars is kind of having a tough time right now, maybe even especially because it's having a tough time right now, I would uh, prize that Friars Club lapel pin as a bit of nostalgia, a bit of history, and something that I had strived for for a while. So I'm uh, amending 
my answer in the previous hour to the Friars Club lapel pin. You still have your Friars lapel pin? No, I never got you one. You never got I one? Don't, I don't know why, but Make I never got one. For mine. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. All right. Um, one of the more memorable stories I've heard you tell ever and on this show, and I got just incredible feedback from folks when you told it, was when you told the story of uh, Sid Bernstein bringing the Beatles to America. It's fortuitous that you're in studio today because just yesterday it was announced that a new Beatles song is being released Next week, uh, featuring the voice of the, the late John Lennon, and it's been developed using artificial intelligence, and it's called Now and Then, and it's being billed as the last Beatles song. It features parts recorded by um, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, as well as the late George Harrison. According to Paul McCartney, he said, there it was, John's voice, crystal clear, it's quite emotional, and we all play on it. It's a genuine Beatles recording, and um, I'm curious how you feel about that, about using artificial intelligence to, in some cases, bring back artists from the dead. I mean, we're talking about a lot of great artists. Maybe we'll play some clips in just a little while. Wouldn't it be great to see a new stand-up routine by Jackie Mason or Pat Cooper or Buddy Hackett and have them created doing new material if they were commenting on what was happening today. This is obviously a little different because some of it was actually recorded by John Lennon, but it was aided by AI. How do you feel about AI bringing people back to life? Uh, Frank, I'm not a fan of it. As far as I'm concerned, Pat Cooper used to have a, uh, a term called oil paintings. You know, those things are masterpieces. You never fool around with that. And uh, I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm very, very organic. I just want what Jackie Mason did to be what Jackie Mason did, what Sinatra did, etc. Uh, as far as the Beatles, well, you know, you still got two Beatles here, and I guess that they feel that this is something appropriate. Uh, not my cup of tea. Got it. All right. Well, speaking of the Beatles, speaking of Sid Bernstein, you told the story of the uh, concert at Shea Stadium. You told the story of how Sid Bernstein um, really kind of miraculously brought the Beatles to America. Mm -hmm. What was your understanding of why the Beatles actually broke up? Well, as far as why they broke up, uh, I don't know about that. But as far as getting them back together, that was a thing that Sid really wanted to do. And um, I, I always felt a few years ago when they had that Let It Be movie come out mm -hmm. and then they finished with a concert on the roof. And uh, I always felt that Sid thought that that was the uh, great missed opportunity. And if their manager, who he was uh, had a strong relationship with, Brian Epstein, who passed away in 1967, he always said, well, if Brian was there, that is not the way it would have finished. And I said, well, Sid, I, I said, but but you were still around. What were your pitches to them? And he said, well, in 1976, six years after they broke up, uh, he uh, decided that he wanted to reach out to them and that he wasn't very comfortable with that last concert on the roof. He thought it was a little bit silly. Uh, and uh, he said, El, I wanted to figure out a way where the legacy of the Beatles could be something as great as they were. I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, El, I had an idea uh, that uh, if we could put together a global concert at that time, 1976 would be off a of satellite, closed circuit TV, closed circuit movie theaters mm. around the world. And if we could bring them together for one night, 
with a global concert. In 1976, he had hoped maybe could raise a billion dollars and let's use it to put it towards research. And if the Beatles uh, um, raising that money could cure cancer, that would be the proper end for that band. And so he said, I had an idea that if we could put this together for folks to come back for one more night with the Beatles where they could say, hey, goodbye, guys. You were great. We loved you. We're here for one more night to say goodbye to you in the proper way. I said, well, Sid, how did you do it? He said, El, uh, I was very close with Brian Epstein. Him and I would call each other all the time, but I didn't have John's number. I didn't have Paul's Mm. number. We would speak on occasion, rarely. Uh, So he said, I felt the best way to do it would be to be would be to uh, take out a full page ad in the Sunday Times because at that time everybody was reading the Sunday New York Times, and he said, "L, I borrowed uh, twenty five thousand dollars from the same man who originally lent me the money to send to Brian Epstein, Abe Margulies, uh, and I took out a full page ad in the Sunday Times." with basically a letter, Dear John, Paul, George, and Ringo, uh, for all the joy you've brought to the world, et cetera, et cetera, and how your fans still want one more night with you. Can we get together for one night? Let's put it together. Nobody gets paid. Let's try to raise a billion dollars from people throughout the world coming to say goodbye to you guys in your last concert ever. And in addition, we'd ask everybody to come with an article of clothing Mm. or some type of food that could go to the homeless throughout the world. And that should be the legacy of the Beatles. I said, well, Sid, what happened? He said, oh, well, Yoko called me. John saw it. And she said, Sid, John would like some more information about this. This sounds very interesting. And he said, "El, I ran down to Dakota. I didn't meet with John, but I left it with the doorman. Uh, Paul had made a public comment that Sid thinks uh, too much of us, that uh, he thinks we can cure the problems of the world, but uh, Sid doesn't realize all we are is a rock and roll band. Uh, There were no comments from George or Ringo uh, and he said, "L, unfortunately, it didn't happen, and we lost $25,000 with that ad. Mm. My wife was going to divorce me. Uh, but the, uh, the kicker to the story says a few weeks later, he said, I'm walking with uh, his daughter. I think it was Denise. Had, Sid has six children. Uh, and he said, we're walking down First Avenue near his home at the time, 72nd Street, and he sees a black limousine pull up next to him, and a guy rolls down the window and he just yells out, Sid, I heard those bleepers wouldn't do it for you. And Sid said, who is this? And the guy gets out of the car and comes over to him, and it was Mick Jagger. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so, my. So, oh, so my. he said, El, I tried my best, but I just think that just knowing that we've got people out there in the business who will put up so much not to make a dime but to do the right thing – and Sid had uh, very, very big ideas, and he tried to do something special with the Beatles. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Mm, uh, that is a shame. You think about how uh, the history of popular culture and entertainment would have been different had that come to fruition. I mean, wow. It, you know, it seems like if you look at other popular entertainers of that era, if people are just tuning in, my guest is uh, Elliot Gordon. If you want to comment or if you have a question about anything we're talking about, you're welcome to call in 800 848 9222 The a lot has been made about the relationship between or lack thereof between Elvis and the Beatles. 
another one of the uh, popular entertainers throughout the entire the entirety of the Beatles tenure was Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. If you know, what did Frank Sinatra think of the Beatles? Uh, well, gee, uh, I don't know. I mean, outside of, of what I, I read, I know Frank Sinatra did a cover of the uh, George Harrison song, Something, Something in the Way She Moves. And I, I, I do remember his comments being that was the best love song written over the last 50 years. So, um, you know, gee, how could how could they not respect each other? Right. Sure. And no, no doubt about it. And uh, Nancy Sinatra did a couple of great uh, covers of Beatles songs as well. Um, you have a very indirect personal anecdote regarding Frank Sinatra, not necessarily something he was involved musically, but in a lot of ways, much more significant. What was a it? Absolutely. Uh, I only met Frank Sinatra on four occasions, but all of them were very, very memorable. And uh, it was a special uh, a situation where he really saved my friend's life. There was a gentleman uh, named Joe McKean who was a buddy of mine. He was in the frozen fish business, but we shared a friend called Jilly Rizzo. And everybody knew that Jilly would travel all over the world with Frank Sinatra. And when they would be in New York... Joe and I and Jilly and Pat Henry and all those guys, we'd get together. There was a place called Rocky Lee's on the east side we'd all hang out at. And we were very tight with Jilly. So I called Joe one day, and uh, his voice sounded terrible, awful. I said, Joe, uh, get to a doctor. There's something wrong with your voice. And he said, El, he just spoke to Jilly. They're in New York. Uh, they were staying at the Waldorf. He said about 20 minutes ago, he said the same thing. And he said, Joe, I want you to see Sinatra's doctor. He has a doctor for his throat named Dr. Sam, and he's the best in the world. He's handling Sinatra's throat. That's pretty impressive no doubt, for a absolutely. doctor. Uh, he said he's number one. I said, Joe, did you call him? He said, oh, I called him. But this guy is so packed, he couldn't get an um, appointment for six months I said, Joe, you might not make six months. Right. Well, at six months, he said, I called Jilly back, and uh, Jilly told Sinatra, and Sinatra told his secretary, a nice lady named Dorothy Ullman. I met her, very, met her very many times, a lovely lady, to call Dr. Sam, and as a favor to him, ask if he could come in the next day an hour early and see Joe immediately. How do you say no to Frank Sinatra? No doubt, sure. So Joe said, "L." He said, "Go on the next day." He said, and I speak to him the next day. I said, "Joe, what happened?" Uh, he said, "L." The doctor found cancer in one of the two vocal cords. There's two, and he doesn't put in a voice box. He teaches a special operation where you pull out the cancerous cord and you strengthen the other cord. Uh, so no voice box. He would have a deep voice like Marlon Brando in The Godfather. And he said, El, he said he's going to charge him $10,000 to do it. I said, Joe, I got a guy in the Bronx. He'll cut your throat for a lot less than 10000 I said, he said, no, 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 I'm going to this guy. And it worked out. He goes, and maybe uh, he was back home right away. And I speak to him about a week later. I said, Joe, you sound pretty good. He said he felt great. He said, you know something? He said, meet me at Rocky Lee's, the same restaurant. He said, let's have a couple of drinks, something to eat. He said, because he feels fabulous, and now he's cancer-free. So I was uh, with a young lady at the time, and we meet Joe, and we're in the restaurant. And the way we're in the back of the restaurant at Rocky Lee's is uh, Joe's back to the, back to the wall, 
uh, the girls back to the door, and I was catty corner so I could see anybody coming in. And all of a sudden, a gentleman named uh, Dick, who I recognized as Sinatra's limousine mm. driver in New York. I knew the guy, a very nice gentleman. Uh, and Jilly walks in, and then after thunder comes lightning, there comes Sinatra, and then comes Barbara Sinatra, and they walk in the back, and Sinatra sees Joe sitting at our table, and he starts, like, kidding around, like, in a heavy Brooklyn accent. Hey, Joe, how's the trot? How's your trot, Joe? And then he comes over to the table, and he grabs Joe's hand. Are you okay? And uh, Joe looked at him and thanked him for saving his life. And then the funny part is he's leaning on the girl who I happen to be with. She don't know who it is. She's got a, and then she looks up and Frank Sinatra is leaning all over the top of her. <laughs> and she looks at me and her jaw drops and she, is that him? I said, yeah, it's him. And then he goes over to his table and uh, I just remembered he yelled out, He's having around the Budweiser. I said, what kind of announcement is this? He's having around the Budweiser. And then later, Jilly told me that he's got a couple of Budweiser distributorships that belong to him as part of a promotion years ago where he would place their products in his films. But I just thought it was so nice for, for this man to, to make a phone call, to ask a doctor to come in special to see Joe McKean and wind up saving his life. That, that's outstanding. I mean, usually when you hear a story of uh, someone saying that Frank Sinatra saved their friend's life, it usually goes something like, uh, my friend was being beaten up by Jilly and Dick, and Frank Sinatra told them to stop. Right. Usually that's how that goes. Right. Uh, Elliot Gordon is here. We're going to continue in uh, just a moment. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the legendary Alan Sherman and uh, some other some other voices from the past that you may be familiar with some that you may not be. We're going to get into it in just a moment. 800-848-9222. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest is Elliot Gordon. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Now I'd like to turn to something that, uh, and that so happens to be the title. Of this is a great song by George Harrison of the Beatles with a marvelous arrangement by Don Costa. It's one of the best love songs I believe to be written in 50 or 100 years. And it never says, I love you in the song, but it really is one of the finest, if you please. Something in the way she moves Tracks me like no other lover 
Something in the way that she woos me I don't want to leave her now You better be leaving and how The great Frank Sinatra doing his best version of the Beatles, uh, doing it quite well, I might add. The uh, the one and only Elliot Gordon is my guest in studio. He's an entrepreneur, former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer, and a uh, talent agent. And if you ever have an opportunity to see his live show, it really is something to behold. Elliot, by the way, if people want to get in touch with you uh, to get you to do the show that you do at, um, I don't know, wherever you they might want you to do it, what's the best way for them to the do that? The best way really is Facebook. Just connect with me on Facebook, Elliot Gordon. Message me. I'll get back to you. And uh, like I say, Frank, I'm doing it all over. I did it today out in Great Neck, uh, uh, a beautiful community called Atria Great Neck Park. And, and the people, they don't want me to leave. You know, after I do the hour, they say, hey, do you got more? Can you give a little bit more? And uh, I'm just amazed. I tell these folks, I says, you know, we never realized how important those entertainers Mm. were to us. They became a member of our family, and we want them back in our lives. That's wonderful. I love love hearing that, and I love hearing stories about newer audiences rediscovering or discovering for the first time people that uh, may not have been a part of their upbringing. So I, I think that's great. Someone who I think has been a part of everyone's upbringing for, I don't know, the last 60 years or so has been Alan Sherman. Now, obviously, I think a lot of people know the song, Hello Mother, Hello Father, and a lot of the other great uh, parodies that he did, a lot of the other great novelty music. I love his version of uh, Westchester Hadassah, which is uh, a take on Winchester Cathedral. I mean, he's just uh, terrific. What I don't know that I had um, in uh, an appreciation of is what role George Burns, the legendary comedian George Burns, had in Alan Sherman's career as a performer. What was it? Well, you know, he George Burns discovered him at a dinner party in Los Angeles, and he connected him with Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, and the next thing you know, magic happened. Uh, I've got a lovely lady who I spoke with about two years ago, the wonderful Marlo Thomas, and uh, Marlo was, I said, Marlo, I said, you know, when you would go home, you had all those great people visiting your father, Danny Thomas. And she said, El, whenever I would go home, Milton Berle would be there and Sid Caesar. And, uh, uh, and her favorite was always George Burns. There was just something charming about George Burns. And I once asked Pat Cooper, I said, Pat, did you ever do any work with George Burns? He said, El, he said uh, he was working with uh, Tony Martin who was married to Sid Charisse at the time. He said Tony was a pretty good singer. Uh, we're working at a hotel, and George Burns knew Tony, and Pat was opening for him in 1965, 66. And he said George Burns came backstage, and he told him that you're a funny kid, you're going to make it, you're a good comic. And he said, oh, when George Burns says that to you, sure. you, 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 hold, you treasure that forever. And Pat Cooper wasn't an easy guy, but he said he melted me. George Burns is telling me I'm a good comedian. Then I know I was, then I know I was the real deal. And so what role did George Burns have in discovering Alan Sherman? As well, what he did is when he discovered him at that dinner party, 
He connected him with Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, and Jack Warner wound up giving him the record deal, gotcha. and that gotcha. record got out. Uh, you know, here's a little bit of Alan Sherman with uh, Dean Martin and another guy with an incredible voice, Vic Damone. Love is where you find it. Look beneath it. Look behind it, and you'll find it. <laughs> I know a man, his lame is name is... <laughs> his lame is Lang. I know a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it no, no, Old Lang. No. Sign. <laughs> Do not make a stingy sandwich pile of cold guts high. Customers should see salami coming through the rock. When you go to the delicatessen store, don't buy the liver worse. Don't buy the liver worse. Don't buy the liver worse. I repeat just what he said before. Don't buy the liver worse. Don't buy Buy some pizza if you must And the lasagna you can trust And the locks put you in orbit Hey, okay Hey, okay But that big hunk of liverwurst Has been there since October 1st And today is the 23rd of May So when you go to the delicatessen store Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst Cause it'll make your insides awful sore Sherman's take on uh, don't buy the liverwurst, and the rumor is that uh, it just caused uh, liverwurst sales to crater all over the country at the, at that point. A lot of people don't know that uh, Alan Sherman, before he got into performing and doing song parodies and stuff, he he was actually a television producer. Right? I heard that. Yeah, I, heard I mean that, yeah. that's uh, that's really incredible to to think about that kind of a a career transition. Uh, Elliot Gordon is my guest. There was a, another comedian named Mickey Freeman. Now, Mickey Freeman might not be a household name, but the show that he was on was absolutely a household uh, staple. Who's Mickey Freeman? Mickey Freeman, I know him from the Friars Club, wonderful guy. I thought he was a terrific comedian, but he was Private Zimmerman on Sergeant Bilko's show years ago. In fact, uh, he even wrote a book about it called uh, Behind the Lines with Bilko. And he said, Ella, it was a great experience. It was a great television show. And then for years, Mickey worked as a comedian in the Catskills, and he made a good living. He was a pretty good comedian. And about, I think it was 2006, uh, I, uh, a buddy of mine or a buddy of ours, Gary Baumgarten, now with Fox News, was working for an Internet company called Pal Talk, 2006. And he said, El, this is the broadcasting of the future. And when I saw what they had going on, I said, you know, this is a uh, the most advanced version of television is the computer. It's an interactive television sh- set. And this is almost 20 years ago. So we went to the owner of Pal Talk and we say, you should start programming. And I've got a guy. 
guy named Pat Cooper, who was the funniest guy in the world. Let's do a talk show with Pat Cooper live from the Friars Club. And we did it. And a couple of them went terrific. And then for some reason, one night, I forgot why, we did it at a very elegant nightclub called Feinstein's, Mm. owned by Michael Feinstein in the Regency Hotel. And Pat was the host. And we brought Mickey on and a bunch of people. And the audience loved him. It was that old style shtick that had a special charm to it. And Mickey could tell a joke with the, I said, Mickey, you got some good stuff tonight. I'm bringing you my best jokes tonight. I love you guys. You guys got the top of the line. And he was terrific. Yeah. You know, we actually have a clip of Mickey Freeman on the pal talk version of the Pat Cooper show. Here's Mickey Freeman on, uh, on Pat Cooper show in 2005 or so.
for five years they treated him for arthritis. Then he found out he had a pebble in his shoe. <laughs> so I took him to a doctor. Now you come into a doctor in Florida, you hear sounds you never heard in your life. Coughing, sneezing, farting. So I come in with my, my uncle, we sit, we sit down, then another dignified couple comes in, they sit down, and then the gentleman came in alone. And about five minutes later, he leaves out a window shot. The wallpaper curled up. So this husband of the woman said, How dare you fart before my wife? I said, I didn't know it was her turn. <laughs> but I must tell you, in conclusion, you know, people come to Florida, it's the fountain of youth. They're looking for you. Well, this man, his, he'd been married for about 50 years. His wife passed away. So he went to a plastic surgeon and said, I want a complete makeover. My eyes, my, uh, my face lift, everything, do the whole thing. So he does the whole thing and he walks out so springy. As he walks out, he gets hit by a truck. So he's laying there in the streets. says, God, how could you do this to me? How could you, when you needed money for the temple, I was the first one. Whenever you needed help, I was the one. So the next voice you heard was, Schwartz, that's you? I didn't recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the brilliant Mickey Freeman on the Pal Talk incarnation of the of the Pat Cooper show. How old was Mickey there when he was doing that? Mickey had to be about eighty five, and I think he passed away when he was in his when he was ninety three. And I, I believe that they held a, a, some type of memorial service at the Friars Club. And Pat Cooper told me he was there, and he told his wife he had a girl on the side. Ninety five, <laughs> ninety three. <laughs> God bless him. That is that is terrific, and it is interesting. Uh, I remember Pal Talk, and the model was kind of a combination of uh, communicating with uh, video, audio, and text. Right. And it's kind of what is being done now with Zoom, with Facebook right. Messenger. What happened to the owners of Pal Talk? Did they make some money? Good question. I mean, Gary uh, is the one who brought me into the company, and I really felt they missed the boat, that they could have been Netflix before Netflix. This is like mm -hmm. 205, 206, mm -hmm. and I said, guys, you know, we're getting something going on here. We had Danny Aiello come on the right. show, Tony Lobianco, Tina Louise from Gilligan's Island. We were building a nice audience, maybe 100, 200 people from the Friars were coming each time we did it because Pat's so naturally funny. And I said, this is the future. Give us a chance here. Uh, even guys like Jimmy Breslin right. we had on. Uh, and uh, I think they made a bad decision not going in that direction at 2006 because, you know, we were ready to expand and uh, now – uh, the biggest broadcast in the world is Netflix, and they could have beat them to the punch. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Elliot Gordon is my guest. Uh, may uh, pick Elliot's brain on a story that involves Israel, which we were talking about in a moment. If you have comments or questions, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. Uh, that's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
yesterday But it was long ago Janie was lovely, she was the queen of my night There in the darkness with the radio Playing low end And the secrets that we share The mountains that we move left to prove And I remember what she said to me How she swore that it never would end I remember how she held me oh so tight Wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then Against the wind We were running against the wind This is Against the Wind by Bob Seger, and uh, this is a birthday bumper music selection by Wit Halley, or Wit Hale. I only met Wit once. It was about seven or eight years ago, but we had a nice conversation. Maybe we met twice. I think it was just the one time, though. But what a pleasant afternoon it was. And uh, today's his birthday. So if you run into Wit Hale or Halley today, tell him you heard us play this song in uh, in his honor. All right. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest is uh, Elliot Gordon, who's uh, just as much fun off air as, uh, as he is on air. Elliot, you know, obviously uh, there's a lot of people paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East. And the interesting thing, as horrific as what Hamas did, in terms of this terrorist attack on Israel is the interesting thing to me is it gives you a chance to look at the history of Israel and the history of the Middle East, because there are not that many places that have this many fascinating layers of history, not just going back decades or centuries, but literally millennia. You have a a pretty interesting anecdote regarding a a fairly recent aspect of Israel's history. Tell us about it. Yeah, I had uh, produced a television show called The Leon Charney Report from 1997 to 2000. Leon was the negotiator for the original Camp David. Uh, and uh, and then became a real estate magnet many years later. Uh, and I meet a man through Leon uh, named Peter Malkin. His Hebrew name is Tzvi, Tzvi Malkin. And we become friendly because I was booking him on some TV shows. And uh, he was a former Mossad agent, one of their best, and he became famous as the man who physically tackled Adolf Eichmann in Argentina. Wow. Uh, many Mossad agents were involved, but Peter made the tackle. And he said, El, he said, I dragged him into a house. We had to wait three days for an El Al jet to come in. And remind me what year that was. Uh, that had to be 1960 wow. or 1961. So, yeah, so Israel's a relatively new country. The war is right. about 15, 16 years old. And, right. Go ahead, please. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I said, Peter, I said, the Gestapo killed your family in Poland. You go to Israel. You go up through the ranks, become a Mossad agent, and you got Eichmann in your hands. Uh, why didn't you just kill him? And he said, because I'm not a Nazi. 
He said, I don't do it that way. He said, we brought him back to Jerusalem. He stood trial. Uh, he was convicted. And then we killed him. But wow. that's a whole different level. He said, I just wouldn't do it. So Peter tells me, he said, El, he said, we drag him into the house. I got him tied up by his hand to the bedpost. And I've got my eyes on him round the clock. He said, I was ordered not to speak with him. But he said, I'm not a Nazi. I got my own mind and I don't follow orders. Uh, Peter was a pretty tough guy. Uh, and he said, I talked to him constantly. I questioned him constantly over that 72-hour period until that LL jet came in uh, to take him back to Jerusalem. Uh, and I said, well, what did you think of him? He said, what terrified me is that he was not, he was not a fire-breathing dragon. He was not a monster. Uh, he seemed so normal, like the accountant you might be using or the butcher across the street or grocer across the street. He was totally normal, except he spoke about killing Jews like you would talk about going and meeting somebody for a slice of pizza. Uh, and he said that terrified me, that somebody so normal uh, could have that attitude toward mass murder. Did Did you get from Peter any inkling about whether Eichmann had any any guilt or any remorse about what he had done? He felt none. Uh, he uh, The only remorse he seemed to feel was that uh, they caught him. And uh, he said, well, as soon as I grabbed him and knocked him down, uh, he just said Mossad. He knew we were on his tail. Uh, and he told me that they came within 24 hours of getting Mengele, but uh, they didn't get him. Wow, that is incredible. You talk about something that could be a movie or a play. Uh, yeah. The 72 hours that Peter spent right. with Eichmann, uh, I would, uh, I'd pay anything to see that dramatized yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Peter's no longer living, I imagine. No, he uh, died uh, several years ago. And in fact, uh, District Attorney Robert Morgenthau uh, did the eulogy. I went down there. It was a Parkey synagogue. Uh, and he spoke so beautifully about Peter. He said that he had hired him uh, when he left the Mossad to go to Europe for guys that have jumped bail and the DA wanted back in New York to stand trial. Uh, and he said uh, he would pay him. He would go. He'd bring these guys back. And then one time uh, he paid him to track some guy down in London. He gets a call from Peter. Uh, and Peter asked Robert Morgenthau, the DA, do you have uh, contacts in the CIA? And he says, uh, yes, he did. He's not in district mm. attorney. He did. And he said, well, call those contacts and tell them that so-and-so is in the hotel that I'm at, and he's in the room next to me. Uh, and Morgenthau said that I kind of like, you know, just pushed it to the side. Yeah. I figured I got my own problems. Let the CIA worry about the CIA. Uh, and he said Peter called him back two or three times, very indignant, yelling at him. Call them and tell them. And Morgenthau said, finally, I relented. I called one of my contacts, and the guy got all excited. Where is this guy? Where is this guy? And he gave him the hotel Peter was staying at, and he said he's in the room next uh, next to him. And the uh, agent told him, we have agents on the way to the airport right now. Thank you. <laughs> and it worked out it was the number two man in the KGB that they had been searching all over the world for. And he said, yes, Peter, how did you know this guy? How did you recognize him? And he said, Peter, I told them when you've been doing this thing as long as I have, you smell them. That is incredible. Uh, that's uh, incredible. Th that interview on that show that you were producing, that's mm -hmm. not available to, for viewing on the Internet any anywhere, is it? I'd uh, love to watch that interview. Uh, I'll try to track it yeah. down. Uh, Leon was on for many, many years, and at that time there was no streaming. He would just sure. purchase time. 
uh, because he was a very wealthy guy, and uh, he was a very, very uh, uh, supporter of Peter telling these stories, El, because he told me, he said, El, I don't like the Holocaust denial stories going out there about Eichmann having a diary and writing things. Uh, he said, that's why it's important to have right. Peter. I asked Peter, I said, did this guy have a diary? Did he keep a diary? He said he wasn't at his vacation home. He said, I had him wrapped up in a, in, in a, in a rope. His hands were tied. He didn't write anything. He couldn't write a birthday card. Let, There's no diary. Uh, let me ask you, uh, before we run out of time here, because you've worked with a lot of uh, comedians and a lot of great Jewish comedians over the years, and it's not unusual for Jewish comedians to make uh, Jewish jokes. There was a controversy a couple of weeks ago about a uh, a Muslim comedian named Hassan Minaj. Are you up on this whole thing? Uh, no. So he um, w- was doing very well comedically, and he would tell a lot of stories, a lot of them pretty funny, uh, some not, about being discriminated against as a Muslim, the uh, going to take a date to the prom and the family of his prom date doesn't want him any any of the pictures or being questioned by the FBI after uh, September 11th. So the New Yorker, because this guy was such a big up and coming, com- not up and coming, established comedian with Netflix specials, the whole nine yards. He had um, they did this whole series of articles or one big article all about how the things that he was saying in his act weren't true and uh he came out yesterday and said that he thought that the lines between truth and fiction were allowed to be a bit more blurry when it comes to his personal storytelling but other people are saying look well you're creating an image that you were a victim of racism and islamophobia when you weren't what's your view as a guy that's been a lot of around a lot of comedians and around a a lot of jewish comedians maybe even some who were genuine victims of Mm anti-semitism What's your view about putting fictitious stories of victimization in your act? As far as I'm concerned, if it's funny, do it. This is about entertainment. This is about uh, you're not getting up there and doing a documentary. This is not the six o'clock news. You're supposed to be funny. As long as you can make people laugh. Jackie Mason once told me if you could juggle shirts and people enjoy that, then go up there with a box of shirts. It's all about it. It's not a message up there. It's all about entertaining people. Whatever you got to do to make people laugh, do it. I uh, I couldn't think of a better note to end on. Elliot Gordon, go ahead. Uh, Frank, I just want to get in a quick plug yeah, again. Please. That's November 16th, Encore Luxury Living uh, at Jericho. Their number you can call is 516-719-7600, 516-719-7600. And anyone I'll can be, go to that. Anyone yes, can get tickets. Okay. I'll, be, I'll be there doing history of the comedians of the Catskills, and at a regular basis, there's a beautiful senior community with a lovely theater in Manhattan called the Apsley by Sunrise. I'm there once a month doing similar presentations. So guys, if you want to see me and you want to have a couple of laughs, come down. We'll share some stories and we'll have a great time. Elliot Gordon, thank you very, very much. Let's do this again soon, okay? In the immortal words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Use it.